May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. There's this old saying that we use when something seems particularly easy. We say, it's like taking candy from a baby. You've heard that, right? It's like taking candy from a baby. I don't know where that came from. Every time I hear somebody say that, I have this mental image. I don't, this, kind of, this is the way my brain works, not very well. I, I, I have this mental image of this little child, you know, this little boy, like 12 months old or so, with a little dumb, dumb sucker that he probably got when he went through the bank, you know, teller or whatever, gave it to him. And, and he's got it clutched around his little hand, and then somebody tries to take it away from him. Why would you take candy from a baby? I don't even know where that comes from. But, you know, get your own candy, right? I mean, why is that so easy, taking candy from... Besides, have you ever actually tried to take candy from a baby? I mean, it might be that you can get it away from them, that you can, you know, by the strength of your hand against their tiny little hand, you know, you can pry it out. But I wouldn't call it easy at all. If you know of any, any families who have, you know, a 12-month-old child, I want you to try a little social experiment. Don't tell their parents, by the way, that you're doing this. But uh, go buy one of those big lollipops, you know, the big giant ones that have all the swirl of color or whatever. And I want you to take it and I want you to give it to the child. Let him or her lick on that for a good little while until they get that taste of sugar in their mouth. And then I want you to try to take it away. Okay? Because you might be able to get it away from them, but you know what's going to happen, right? They're going to scream like, like they found a head in a bag or something. It's going to be a scream scream, a terrifying, I just watched a horror film scream. And then you're going to try to, and if they have a tooth or two, you better watch out because you're going to feel the pain of that coming your way as well. You might be able to get it away from them, but there's a huge price to pay. They're going to cry. I hate it when babies cry, don't you? I mean, I always, I always pick them up and, you know, say, don't worry, the Browns will win the Super Bowl someday, you know. <laughs> he won't always be in office. You know, whatever, you know, you have to tell them. And then they stop crying. You don't know who I'm talking about. And, um, and, and you know, I pat them and, and try to get them to stop. I don't think that you would do this. You wouldn't take candy from a baby unless you're just mean, you know. I mean, it would take a, a, a kind of mean person to do something like that. I remember when I was a, a pastor in Kentucky, my very first pastorate in rural Kentucky. Um, you know, it, was a, it was a great little parish. And, and one day I was back in the back kind of talking with some people in the kitchen. And, um, and all of a sudden this little, this little boy, Will, he must have been about, about four or five. He comes running through. And, and then right behind him, Emily, his sister, his older sister. She might be five, six, seven, whatever. And, and so a couple of years apart. So here comes Will flying through, Emily right behind them. And their mother, Tina, she grabs both of them. You know how mothers do. I mean, they're like instinctively. I don't even think she missed the pause in the sentence, you know, and just grab these two little children up and... And she excused herself for a minute. She's given them what for about running through the church. And, um, and I remember them, you know, back and forth. Well, he did this and she did that. Blah, 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 blah. And then Emily stopped and she said, Mama, he hit me in the face and for no reason other than pure meanness. <laughs> no reason other than pure meanness. Eight-year-old Kentucky girls have a sophistication in getting to the heart of, you know, the moral problem. <laughs> he was just pure mean. No reason other than that. Have you ever known somebody who did something just out of pure meanness sake? Maybe I've told you about this. When I was about five years old, my, I, I lived in Atlanta. 
and my brother was about seven. And my mother let us, I don't know why, on Halloween night, go one more trip around the block by ourselves. It was the 70s, you know, people were a little different. Then anyway, so she, my mother lets my brother and I go around the block one more time by ourselves to get one more last grab candy. And as we're heading around the block, I remember, like it was yesterday, this teenage boy comes up to me. There were probably three or four of them, but one of them spoke to me. And he says to me, he says, hey, little guy, can I see how much candy you got? I, of course, was suspicious. I thought maybe he was going to steal it. And he says, oh, I, I promise I won't steal any. I just want to see. So here I am, Casper the ghost that year, little plastic mask on my face, you know, my brother right next to me. I have this little plastic bag given out by the local pharmacy or whatever, and I open it up so he can see inside of this. Don't you know that dirty rat of a boy took a, a lit firecracker and threw it right in that bag? Boom! It exploded instantly. And candy went, it, I mean, it was like the, the pinata of all pinatas. I mean, candy going all over the place. I was in tears. They took off running laughing. My brother did the first kind thing he's ever, and probably the last kind thing he's ever done for me. And he helped pick up my candy, you know, and kind of directed me back home. I was sobbing. I remember crying all the way home. This kid did this for no reason other than pure meanness. And I learned a valuable lesson that day, a lesson that you've probably learned, a lesson we've all learned somewhere along the way. The idiom goes like this. You burn me once, shame on you. You burn me twice, shame on me. We, I learned that day, like you've learned a million times in your own life, that you can't trust people. They're not trustworthy. Put up your guard, be defensive, be secure. You can trust yourself, maybe, but that's about it. Everybody else... Well, they're always going to be suspect. In the gospel lesson today, Jesus invites some friends to go up to a mountain retreat. Just six days before this, they were having a conversation, Jesus and his friends, and he's asking his friends this question. He says, who do people say that I am? You, you, you've read this perhaps. Um, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? And here, here's the word on the street. They say, you might be one of the prophets like Jeremiah or Ezekiel or... Or Elijah, you might be you, you might be the reincarnation of John the Baptist back from the dead. You know, that's pretty good good buzz on the street. I mean, if someone says you're like Jeremiah or Elijah, I mean that's like comparing a baseball player to to Willie Mays, you know, or Babe Ruth. It's like comparing a singer to John Lennon. I mean, if you're saying you're like one of these guys, well, you're in pretty good company. Well, you know how the story goes. Jesus says, But who do you say that I am? And this is where Peter speaks up bold. And, and he says to him, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And, and it's right after this event, right after this event, that Jesus says, let's go to a mountain retreat. Matthew says, whilst Jesus is on the mountain, he metamorphoses. He's transfigured. He transforms and before them. He becomes glowing like the sun, shining. And suddenly, it gets better. Moses and Elijah are right there with him. So here it is, Jesus shining like the sun. Moses and Elijah right there. Now, Moses and Elijah aren't just two great guys from the Old Testament. When Moses died, God himself buries Moses. And Elijah doesn't die. The Bible says a chariot swoops down and grabs him up and he goes off into heaven. 
Moses and Elijah are like the top two Old Testament figures. They're like the last two on, I don't know, who wants to be a Hebrew idol? It's the, it's the end of the, I mean, this is the top two, the very end of the road, you know? And Jesus is there with Moses and Elijah, these Old Testament heroes. And Peter speaks up and says, you know, Peter, the same one who just days before said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Speaks up and he says, let's never leave this place. We'll build three tabernacles. We'll build three shrines right here and we'll stay right here. And it seems like almost while Peter is speaking this, the cloud rolls in. And you knew, you knew when the cloud came in. I mean, you heard the earlier Old Testament lesson from Exodus. Oh, mountain, cloud on top of a mountain, voice coming out of the cloud. I think I've heard this one before. This is called by theologians a theophany. You'll have to write that down somewhere and drop it at a party sometime. I'm supposed to go to a, a, a Oscar party. Maybe I'll drop theophany tonight. Anyway, um, it's a visible... No, I'm not going to, really. A visible manifestation of the power and presence of God. A visible... God is not the cloud. But the cloud is telling us that God is close by. And a voice comes from the cloud. We're not told whose voice it is because we don't have to be told whose voice it is. What does the voice say? This is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God doesn't often speak from a cloud. I imagine when he does, it's something that you kind of catches your attention. I find that you, I have this DVR on my, on my television now which is really a bad thing because it makes me pay worse attention to stuff that I would otherwise be paying attention to. It's because I know I can always rewind it and listen to it again. And I've noticed that if I'm in the car and I'm listening to the radio, like a program on the radio, and I miss something and I wasn't paying attention, I, I'm looking for the rewind button. You know, like, how do I rewind that? And listen, buddy, you can't, you know, in a car. At least not yet. Maybe someday. If you're up on the mountain and God speaks, there is no rewind button. But I don't think you need one because I think this really does arrest your attention, doesn't it? This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. There's two parts to that sentence. The first part is an indicative. You remember this from grammar, don't you? Indicatives are matters of fact. Fish swim in the ocean. Chocolate is delicious. Joe Boisel is a devilishly handsome priest. All matters of fact, right? Why are you laughing? All matters of fact. But the second part... The second part of that sentence is a command. It's called an imperative. This is my son, the beloved. A matter of fact. Listen to him. A command. Pay attention. Listen to him. Note what he says. I think there's an implied command. Do what he says. And Peter says, you know, this falls on his face with the rest of them. And I imagine that's exactly what we would have done, right? We'd just fall on our face. We'd be terrified. I mean, Jesus transforming. All of a sudden, there are Old Testament heroes who, who were dead or gone and now are back. 
Jesus glowing like the sun, and a cloud rolls in and a voice comes from heaven. I mean, I don't know how much of this we could take before we would fall down on our faces and be terrified. And what happens? Jesus reaches down and he touches them. He says, arise. Don't be afraid. Two commands. You, you got them, didn't you? The first command comes from the cloud, right? Listen to him. The second command. Arise. And don't be afraid. Now you already know that sooner or later you've got to come down from the mountain. You don't get to stay on the mountain. And do you know where the path down the mountain is going to lead? Do you know the direction once you get to hell on the mountain that they're going? This is in Luke's gospel, very clear. Luke 9.51, you should write it down and look at it sometime. Jesus set his face steadfastly towards Jerusalem. The road down the mountain, the path down the mountain goes one place. It goes to the cross. Don't be afraid. But we know where this road is going. But don't be afraid. Do you know the most often repeated command in all of Holy Scripture is this? Be not afraid. Fear not. This is a command over and over again. Listen to Him. This is what the voice says from the cloud. Listen to Him. Well, how do we listen to it? Just a few things that I want to point out. First of all, listening to Jesus is not always listening to what other people say that Jesus says. You know, you have, to, you have to kind of bifurcate those two, right? What do people say that Jesus says? And what did he actually say? We have four Gospels. <laughs> and mine has words in red, you know. <laughs> Maybe yours does too. One of the ways that we can figure out what Jesus actually said was to actually read the words that he used. Now, there's a little bit of a struggle. There's a little bit of interpretive work. I know this isn't just opening it up and reading it. it you, have to, you have to engage your brain. You have to do some research. You have to think through. There are, there are things that are difficult that Jesus has said. Many things. But we have to actually take the time to read what he says so that we might listen to what he says. And then, this is where it gets really hard, right? If there is an implied imperative to obey what he says, once we understand what he says, we have to apply it to our lives and live it out. Well, that's where the rubber really meets the road, isn't it? Not just understanding what he says, but doing it. And then following him all the way to the cross. Because it's on the road to the road of the cross that we might be tempted to say, you know, um, <laughs> this was all fun and games when people were being healed and, you know, ooh-wee. But now, now we're heading to the cross. We've learned what it means to be careful. We've learned what it means not to trust. When you were a little kid and somebody did something mean to you out of pure meanness, somebody opened up, looked inside your Halloween bag and threw a firecracker, you know, when, when some mean girl told me she was going to be my girlfriend in middle school, only to make fun of me later that same day, oh, I'm going to get her back. Um, you know, all the ways in which we've learned not to trust people. And then we hear this voice saying, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. 
the implied command, obey him, I think the even more subtle, trust him. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this part where Lucy is talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. You know, Lucy, the little girl, little heroine, she's talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're telling her about going to meet Aslan, the lion. And Lucy says something like, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mrs. Beaver chimes in, and she says something like, Oh, that you will, dearie. You know, there's no one who could go and meet Aslan without their knees knocking unless they're silly or just plain foolish. And so Lucy responds. She says, then he isn't safe. And this is where Mr. Beaver jumps in and he butts in, doesn't he? And he says, safe? Safe? Haven't you been listening to a word that Mrs. Beaver said? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. You know, you know who Aslan is, don't you? The lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah. This, this analogy, this metaphor for God, for Jesus. Safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. And I think what Lewis does is he captures right there in that moment this paradox that we have to live in. Those of us who are following Jesus down the mountain on the way to the cross, that we can't at the very same time hold in our beings a fear of the Lord and yet never being afraid. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.